Hello, welcome to Canine Mobility, a podcast series where we explore issues around canine mobility and also what can go wrong with a dog's ability to move efficiently and without pain. Canine Mobility is brought to you by specialist veterinarians with a wealth of experience in specialties such as orthopaedics, neurology and rheumatology. My name is John Innes and I'm your host for this episode. I've been a veterinary orthopaedic surgeon for nearly 30 years now and I'm based in the northwest of England. So today I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Ben Walton to continue our discussions around humeral intracondylar fissure in dogs, uh, sometimes called uh, incomplete ossification of the humeral condyle. And Ben, last time we we talked about uh, the potential causes of humeral intracondylar fissure, or let's call it HIF for short, and we we also talked about the diagnostic techniques that vets use to um, come to a diagnosis of HIF. But can you just explain some of the frustrations that vets have had over the years in terms of managing this uh, challenging condition? Um, there's, there's, there's myriad problems, aren't there? I mean, I think that that's the problem here is that um, there have been numerous problems encountered. I suppose that what, what fundamentally under, underpins a lot of the problems is that what we have in the middle of the humeral condyle here uh, in this scenario particularly in these adult dogs is a very challenging um, fracture healing environment so normally when a bone breaks um, the, the 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 blood supply to the original blood supply to the bone is badly disrupted but um, the other tissues around the bone form this other blood supply that grows into the fracture site and allows healing um, and, and that's how, you know, a, a fracture would, would normally heal. And the problem that we have with the middle of the humeral condyle here is that it's surrounded almost entirely, certainly through a good 70, 80 percent of its circumference by the elbow joint, which is full of joint fluid and doesn't have any tissue. And therefore, you know, there is nowhere for, for new bone, uh, new blood supply to form to supply the bone. And. So it's so it's pretty isolated. Is that what you're saying? That um, once it's fractures, it can't get help from you know its friends, the the blood vessels that might come in to to help it heal. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, it's isolated by by the supracondylar foramen, that hole I talked about before, above it, and behind it, in front of it, and below it. Then then you have the elbow joint. Um, so that's that's part of its problem. And also then you know the the blood flow or the blood supply that would normally come through the bone now has to come around that foramen, that hole above the condyle, around these sort of two channels through the, the epicondyles. Yeah, and I, I, I uh, just to interject there a little bit, you know, I, I guess uh, when Steve Butterworth and myself recognised this condition back in the 90s, you know, we, we, we applied the traditional techniques that we, we all know and love. And, you know, we, as you say, we wanted to put a screw across this fracture and we wanted to um, use that screw applied in a certain way to compress the fracture because that, that's the way that surgeons would, would traditionally um, reduce a, a fracture that sits inside a joint. So we wanted to 
apply what's called a lag screw where the, the head of the screw ends up compressing that, that uh, cleft or fissure together. But we, we found that eventually they, they didn't actually heal as we expected them to. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm presuming um, that, that it's the biology of that of the fracture at that point, which, and you've talked about the lack of blood supply, et cetera, that stops that healing. So I know that you've, you've been particularly involved in developing new ways and a new way of thinking around managing HIF. Um, and, and you, you know, you think we're, we're making progress to more successful treatments now. Um, so just, just to outline, what, what does that new way of treating this okay, problem? Okay, good. Yeah. So what we're talking about here then is a, is a system that we've developed uh, called the Humeral Intracondylar Repair System. And, and the name of that system alludes to the philosophy is what we're trying to do here is encourage healing. So, so as, you, as you rightly said, what, what's been the experience is that these fissures um, are slow to heal or don't heal or don't heal completely. And um, what has happened then is that, that surgeons have used increasingly bigger and bigger implants because when we were using smaller implants, eventually those implants were breaking. The problem with just using a bigger implant is that although the implant is less likely to break, the risk is that the forces um, are now transferred to where the implant meets the bone. And if you don't get these fissures to heal, at least in part, then eventually that will loosen. So the philosophy behind the, um, the humeral intracondylar repair system is to treat these fissures like we would treat any other biologically challenging non-union fracture. So if we saw a, a fracture that wasn't healing in the middle of the bone, what we would do is debride some of the bone away, so remove some of the sclerotic disease bone. And the reason for that is to allow new blood supply to form. The next thing we would do is pack the area with some kind of bone graft or a bone graft substitute. And the bone graft is there to kickstart and um, promote healing. And then we would fix the fracture as stable uh, with as much stability as we could. So essentially, usually with, with compression. And we just took those principles that because they're sort of widely accepted principles for how you would manage um, a biologically challenging non-union fracture and applied those to a system to treat HIF. Um, so what, the, what we do with the HIF is we use a, a, a specially designed custom drill bit that drills a hole across the condyle that is bigger than the implant that's going in there. So that creates this void. So this is the, the debridement part of non-union fracture. So we're removing bone, disease bone, to allow new blood flow to form, new blood supply to form. What we then do is because that void is bigger than the shaft of the screw that we're going to put in, we can pack that void with bone graft. So that's the bone grafting part. And then the implant that goes with the hers has a screw thread on both sides and the, the width of the thread, the pitch, is different on either side, which means that as we tighten the screw up, it grips the bone on both sides of the fissure. So it's not sliding through one side like your typical lag screws would be. It's actually gripping the bone on both sides, but it's also squashing the fissure together and creating lots of friction. So that means from the outset, the, the, the fissure is being squashed and sharing some of the weight and some of the forces with the implant. 
So now we have the two sides of the fissure being squashed together. We've removed some of the diseased bone to increase blood flow and pack that with bone graft to promote bone healing. So I guess to, you know, to summarize that, you, you, you know, as well as, I guess there's a tendency for orthopedic surgeons to, to uh, think uh, a lot about the, the biomechanics and the me mechanical uh, aspects of the implant. But what we're really doing here from what you're saying is we're not only doing that, we're also enhancing the biological environment to stimulate bone healing. Um, and so we're looking, you know, we're being a carpenter, but also a gardener, if you like. And looking after those two aspects. That, yeah, that would be very, very fair, fair to say. say. And, and I think that both of those facets are, are important. Um, as we said before, you know, we don't understand why these fissures are forming in the first place. So we're not just relying on bone healing like you would with, you know, like a, a, another form of fracture fixation somewhere else where the fixation might be removed once the bone is healed. Um, we're relying on the bone to heal, yes. So that's our biological part. That's what you don't necessarily get with traditional techniques. But we're also saying that the implant needs to have good longevity. It needs to remain in situ. And it's the implant working together with the partially healed bone that, that will give us the long-term stability and, and, and hopefully a good result right. for yeah. many, many years after treatment. So given that this is a relatively new technique, um, you know, how, how successful do you think this technique is compared to the older traditional techniques that so I mentioned it's, earlier? It's difficult to compare directly. So what we need to do is, is look at the literature, look at the reports of um, the sort of results that other groups have had with traditional techniques and compare them to ours. Um, and, and we've looked back at a number of cases that we've treated with the HERS over the, the first few years. Um, and um, for example, just out of the first 19 cases that we used to treat fissures um, in, in our hospital, we only had one major complication. Um, and that was the case. Yeah. And of course, pre previously, I suppose, my, you know, the experience of surgeons around the country has been that complications were quite frequent with, with well that's with right the i mean and the, the complication rates do vary um i mean one sort of relatively large study um surveyed uh multiple hospitals um and in that study they they recorded a, a major well they recorded a complication rate of 60 percent um you know with a with a right, major yeah, complication yeah. rate of, of over 30 percent where which is high isn't it for you know for for fractures, generally, we'd expect, uh, you know, we would, yes, lower exactly. And, you know, the, there are there are various um, factors in terms of, you know, what material you make your implants out of, you know, the method that you apply it. Um, there are various factors which which might influence your likelihood of getting a complication. And the, mo the most common complications are the for formation of these fluid-filled swellings called seroma. Now, they tend to resolve by themselves, um, so we don't worry too much about those uh, on their own, uh, but they do suggest that there is a fair bit of soft tissue irritation. Now, the HERS implant uh, is a headless screw, which means that um, it sits kind of all within the bone, so it doesn't irritate the tendons either side. Um, and then the other major complication, which was seen very frequently, again, with a, an incidence of around about 30 percent of dogs in, in that study I mentioned before. So that's you know, 
almost one in three dogs um, receiving traditional uh, surgery in that study were developing surgical site infections. Uh, and actually, in, in our first 19 cases that we used the, the, the HERS in, we didn't have a, a case of um, infection, not for HIF. Right. So that sounds that's, that sounds like, um, you know, quite a bit of progress there, I hope. But, what, you know, I know that you've been uh, following all these these cases up so that we know what the short, medium and long term success rates are and what the complication rates are. Um, so wh- where is your research up to now? When when can the rest of us expect to hear more? Of, of um, these so the, the the first paper detailing the, the clinical outcomes and complication rates of the first cases that we used at our own centre uh, and the first few cases that we used at, at other centres uh, is in review at the moment. Um, so I would hope that that paper will be published in the next few months. And then this information about the these clinical outcomes will be in the public domain and, and readily accessible. So from what you say there, that's great. Uh, from what you say there, though, it sounds like other surgeons are already using this technique. So if if there were surgeons listening to this uh, podcast and they, they were interested in uh, learning the technique, what, what uh, should Probably they the do? best thing would be to contact me directly. Um, the implant is currently distributed by uh, veterinary instrumentation, uh, so they could contact veterinary instrumentation. Um, but in terms of um, access to training or... Uh, practical tips on how to apply the system um, probably the best thing is to is to contact me directly as I said earlier okay great so um, it's great that your research is soon to be out hopefully that will be great to, to have that in the literature um, it's been really interesting to you know hear about the sort of story of of HIF if you will and you know it's a story that um has unfolded throughout most of my career, actually. So it, it's a, a pleasure to talk to you today, Ben, about HIF, because I know it's become a real uh, um, particular interest for you. And, you know, certainly it seems like we've moved things on to a better place for, for dogs with this new system. So thank you very much for that, uh, Ben. Um, I think still lots of questions around HIF, aren't there, in our, you know, our clinical uh, cases. Um, but hopefully we, we're making steps forward and improving the lives of affected dogs. So uh, on behalf of everyone listening, Ben, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Appreciate your time and uh, your insight into HIF and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Brilliant. Thanks for your time, John. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks again to our guest on this episode, uh, Dr. Ben Walton. My name is John Innes and I've been your host on Canine Mobility, a podcast series brought to you by specialist veterinarians. Join us next time as we continue to explore issues around canine mobility with other specialist veterinarians.